Eh, forget this Ask Science Mike stuff. It's time for Ask Hillary McBride. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I usually answer your questions about science, faith, and life, but for the next three episodes, we've got a special guest, Hillary McBride, the licensed therapist, researcher, PhD candidate, and all-around brilliant human being, is here to answer your questions about mental health, happiness, contentment, and our feelings. So what do you say? Let's get it started. I can't believe it. This I'm so excited. It's blowing my mind. This might be like the most anticipated special edition of Ask Science Mike ever. Ooh. I put out on the podcast feed, you've got questions for Hillary McBride. We're going to do an Ask Hillary episode of Ask Science Mike. And people went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Oh, this gosh. episode has been months in the planning. More planning, I think, than any episode of the podcast <laughs> I've ever had. And it's finally happening, ladies and gentlemen, and people of non-binary gender identities. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, the one, the only, Hillary McBride. How are you, Hillary? Oh, good. Well, I am just, I'm kind of blushing over here. My cheeks are red. Um, just kind of enjoying hearing hearing this intro and enjoying being here with you. I'm so excited to be with you, Mike, and all of the people who listen to your really important work on this podcast. I'm guessing there could be literally ones of people who listen to Ask Science Mike who aren't familiar with Hillary. Uh, if you don't know Hillary, one, yes, she is a co-host on the Liturgist podcast, but she's also a PhD candidate, a therapist, a researcher, a feminist scholar, like just a force for love and justice in the world. Um, and mm -hmm. so we, we're doing an episode this week. I've asked you all for your questions that fit within Hillary's expertise. And oh my, did we get some questions? <laughs> oh, we got some questions. All right. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to do not one, not two, but three Ask Hillary episodes because when we narrowed down the questions, uh, that's pretty much as tight as we could get it. Um, we had over 500 questions submitted for Hillary. Uh, so we can't get to all of them. I mean, that would be, <laughs> that would be like a multi-season podcast. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we answered yeah. all those questions. But we tried to pick questions that were uh, representative. And I actually really like, you know, one thing that I don't like about Ask Science Mike in some ways is how many people ask me uh, life advice questions and ask me questions regarding mental health. And what I always do is say, hey, I'm not qualified to answer this, but here's what I found on Google. Um, so it'll, it'll be nice to have someone with actual education uh, <laughs> and relevant <laughs> professional expertise talking about these questions today. Although I, I probably also do want to say that um, get ready, Hillary's credentials uh, not only make her more qualified to go through some of these questions, but also limit her in some pretty significant mm -hmm. ways. Uh, so I'll just go ahead and give you the bad news right up front. 
Uh, Hillary cannot diagnose you over a podcast question. (laughs) (laughs) Hillary can't treat you. Hillary is not your therapist, but she is graciously offering us her insights today in the confines of doing that in a public media format that is in no way making her your therapist. Is, is that fair to say, Hillary? Yeah, and thanks for saying that. That's always something that I, I struggle to spit out because it's such an important part of my ethical code, and yet it often makes me feel like I, I can't give people the things that they want. So thanks for so graciously saying that for me, and I, I hope that that works for all the listeners. And we've got some doozies, so we'll jump right in. Here's our first question. Uh, it says, this might not be a question that can be answered in a short podcast episode, but I've followed Hillary's work both on the liturgist and other people's problems. When she's talking to other people, she always seems to ask questions that help the person talk about something they either didn't know or didn't know they needed to talk about. How could I develop that skill in my own life to help myself and people around me? Do I need to become a therapist to be able to know how to ask these questions with out hurting them. And I would just echo this person's question. I've noticed that about you as well, Hillary. Um, and I'm very, very curious to hear what you'll say. Mm, okay, well, here we go. So to the person writing this question, I, I wanted to start off by saying, I'm so glad that you noticed the different kinds of questions that I ask. There are actually some kinds of questions and ways of responding to people that are different in a therapeutic context than what shows up in our everyday reactions to people in our everyday relationships. So Before I answer your question, I kind of need to say that certain questions are therapeutic or exploratory in nature, and they're not necessarily helpful or appropriate in certain interpersonal contexts. I ask questions that are meant to elicit exploration or bring insight and awareness because people have consented to that process. Like literally, we actually sit down and sign a form, a legal form, that goes through the risks and benefits of engaging in this question answering process with me. So I don't ask questions necessarily to pure, uh, I don't ask questions necessarily to feel powerful or to be a good therapist because sometimes my best therapy is actually done when I'm just with a person looking into their eyes and showing them that I'm there with them. So to be clear, I don't ask the same questions in my friendships or with my family or with strangers because they haven't actually consented to that process. And that's not the nature of the relationships. Also, I've got training and skills to know how to do something therapeutic with whatever comes up when they answer the questions. So it's inappropriate, maybe harmful, and maybe even misguided for us if we try to get someone to open up about something when we don't really have the tools to help them close back up again or to create a healing experience. Or right? And this is important if they haven't really agreed to us doing that with them. So when I think about the question asking process, it's really important to try to not get too deep with someone too quickly when we don't have the skills or when they're not consenting to it. Therapy, I think about sometimes is kind of like surgery for the mind or the soul. And a lot has to go into a person being ready or willing to do that exploratory process, not including the training we have to do to do that surgery. But if I'm hearing the heart behind your question, what I hear is that you're actually really interested in helping people and having meaningful interactions with people that feel rich for you and hopefully for them too. So if that's the case, what I might suggest is actually that you work on becoming a better listener. Mm -hmm. That means really hearing what a person is saying, 
And sometimes when we really hear what a person is saying, we ask questions that naturally come up for us when we hear what they're saying, and we have a kind of curiosity about what next. Whenever I'm asking questions in a non-therapeutic context, like with a friend or coworker, and neither they nor I are doing therapy at that time, I try to be extremely cautious to ask questions in a tentative way. For example, if it's okay for you, I'd love to know a little bit more about that. You haven't really told me about that part of your life before, and I'm interested in you and hearing what that is like for you, but only if you're comfortable sharing. Mm. So what you could always do if you wanted to be a better listener is read a book on listening or take a course on active listening skills or join something that we call an interpersonal process group where people in a group setting supported by a trained professional consent to ask each other these deepening questions in addition to expressing their own vulnerability when asked those meaningful questions too. Mm -hmm. So instead of thinking about how do I ask better questions to kind of maybe elicit a, a certain response in someone, what I want to remind you to do is that sometimes those questions naturally come up when we listen and we share our honest reactions to people. But lastly, in a therapeutic relationship, although as a therapist, I really care deeply for my clients, they don't ask me the same questions back. It's a unique kind of relationship that doesn't really work outside of therapy, like maybe in the context of a mentor or a sponsor or supervisor. But that means that if we're hoping to deepen our relationships by doing more active listening, and then asking questions that come out of what we're hearing, we have to be willing to do the same for others and to have other people ask us what we might be asking them. For this kind of questioning to work, we have to enter into that process of relationship and connection with a kind of mutuality. And that's something that you probably don't hear whenever you're hearing me ask these questions. It's a one-way street, not a two-way street. And part of that is because it's within a therapeutic context. So I hope that answers your question, and I love the heart behind this, or what I think is the heart behind this, which is about wanting connection and wanting to experience something meaningful with other people. Hmm. Mike, anything you want to add on that one? I've just noticed in my own life, um, after I went through my collapse of faith and went through a period where I got just as certain in materialism and atheism as I was as a Baptist, and then that collapsed. I was left with no confidence in my beliefs about anything, which changed my dynamic conversationally. I became very uninterested in what I had to say and started just listening to people. Um, and I, I didn't even have great active listening skills. I would kind of sit stone silent as other people talked, but I would just focus on giving them signals like eye contact, which I'm not super comfortable with, but just signs that I'm hearing them. And before I became a science mic, just, just, just this is interpersonally. And what started happening was people started to tell me things they'd never told anyone before. And because I had no confidence in what I had to say in response. I had no advice to offer people. I had no insights that I trusted. I would usually just say, thanks for telling me that. And I, I can understand how you feel, which would lead to people telling me even more <laughs> about themselves. And so often for those of us that do not have therapeutic background and therapeutic training, simply being a non-judgmental listener for people is a real gift that creates intimacy in relationships and honestly invites people into a space where 
they desire to be a non-judgmental, non-reactive listener in return. Mm-hmm. Um, so, gosh, Hillary, that, that is. Uh, I hope that's a skill that everyone listening decides they want to develop because I think we have a real drought of listening in our yeah. culture today and, and a, a great cultural impetus towards, I want to appear smart and an expert and successful and together, which leads us to be really performative. And as that happens, so often we miss out on on the real joy of relationship. One thing that might help people if they're thinking, wow, yeah, you're right. I really wanted to become, a, I really want to become a better listener. How do I do that? I often ask people to, to pause between when they've heard someone say something and when they respond. And when you're listening, not just thinking about what you're going to say next in response to the other person or, or a, sh- a story that you're going to share to show indirectly that you understand what they're saying, but try to leave space to actually hear what is being said underneath the words, hear what is being not said and what that communicates about what's happening in the other person and leave lots of space when they, after they answer, instead of rushing in to give a comment mm-hmm. or some sort of um, statement or a shared story. Wow, that's great. Hmm. Friends, I just got to tell you about KiwiCo. They are a sponsor of Ask Science Mike, and I just love them. I've gotten so many pictures and cards and letters from you all showing me your children playing with KiwiCo crates that you found out about through Ask Science Mike. And this has become like the monthly ritual in our house. Uh, We now have Kiwi crates coming for both of our daughters, Madison and Macy. One is a Tinker Crate, which is focused on engineering and science. And the other is a craft kit, uh, craft kit crate, which is art projects. And they kind of look at them both and then barter and decide who's going to do art this month and who's going to do engineering. And they're making really beautiful things. Uh, This week, Macy made some decorative lights for her room in the art crate. And uh, last month, Madison made a a beautiful uh, leather bag. Um, And so this is something my teenage children love. But I also know that young children love KiwiCo, too, because I've seen all of your pictures on social media. If you'd like to help your children have so much fun learning in an interactive and tactile way, uh, just go to kiwico.com slash science. And KiwiCo is going to send Ask Science Mike listeners a box for free to try out in your family. I absolutely believe your kids will love it as much as mine do. And heck, uh, sometimes I get a little jealous. Some of that stuff looks really fun. Again, just go to kiwi.co slash science. Excuse me, kiwico.com slash science to get your free, completely free KiwiCo crate. Uh, this is says, Hi, Hillary. I have frequently heard about some of the benefits of meditation, but would like to know if there are specific meditative practices that are more suited to people with anxiety depression, and or PTSD. I know of many people who have, who have these conditions that find mindfulness and contemplation does more harm than benefit. 
when they try and remain still with their thoughts or focus on their breathing, their thoughts often turn to suicidal ideation, self-loathing, or they may suffer a panic attack. Is there a type of meditative practice that has been proven to be beneficial to people with anxiety, depression, or PTSD in clinical trials that you have also seen individual benefit from in your line of work? Thanks, Steve. And you know it's an Ask Science Mike question because they asked for clinical trials. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. That's so good. So I'm going to speak more generally instead of rattling off a bunch of uh, the results from randomized control trials. But I wanted to start by saying, Steve, your question is such an important one, particularly as we see a rise in the use of mindfulness in a variety of health contexts. And the message is finally getting out to people in more mainstream contexts that slowing down and being mindful is good for your brain. And while that's true, there are some exceptions for certain kinds of people whose brains might work a little bit differently. So to get into a little bit of the nuance of your question, trauma, anxiety, and depression can all be related, but aren't necessarily related. For some people who have trauma, as part of the trauma diagnosis, they also present with symptoms of depression or anxiety or both. But there are people who experience depression or anxiety who don't have trauma, who don't meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Because all these things can be related, but are also often separately occurring, I want to try and give the best answer that I can in light of the variety of possible clinical presentations or issues that you're talking about. First, mindfulness is super hard, right? I just want to say it's it's really, really hard. And if we're told to sit down and shut up and stop our thoughts for 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, it can be a lot for the average brain, let alone for someone who struggles with any of these conditions that you've mentioned, anxiety, depression, or PTSD. So how we're informed about mindfulness and the context within which we practice can make all the difference. For example, there is such thing as too much too soon, and it can leave us feeling overwhelmed and like we failed, especially if we have a predisposition towards seeing our failures or feeling like we can't get anything right. We want to set ourselves up for success. So I always recommend that with any kind of practice, especially if we're new to it, especially if it's hard, that we start small. If someone has never done mindfulness in the past, I provide lots of education when I'm working with them about what it is. And for those of you who are new to it, I can't imagine there will be many because I know you talk about it lots on this podcast, Mike, but it involves three things, intention, attention, and attitude. And we need to make sure to emphasize that the non-judgment component is actually one of the most important parts of mindfulness not necessarily the absence of thinking, but rather the noticing of our thinking and our shifting our awareness back to a target that holds our attention. And those experiences of noticing that our thinking is going somewhere that we didn't necessarily intend it to and bringing it back and doing that with a kind and thoughtful dialogue is actually part of why mindfulness can be so effective for us. Not just empty, you know, blank brain activity, but Really, the the nurturance of this connection and kindness to noticing when something is happening that maybe we didn't necessarily want to have happen. Hmm. Then, there are different kinds of mindfulness that can be suitable based on what we're struggling with. One of my favorite kinds of mindfulness to do with people who experience depression is not actually to try and push against depressive thoughts or to focus exclusively on their breath, but actually to help people be a detective for the good things in their life. And then when something good happens or comes to mind, to try their very best to stay with it 
and the feeling of it as they experience it in their body without leaving it or intellectualizing it and to stay there as long as possible. So mindfulness can also be that we attune to good things. And we know that for people who struggle with depression, it's super hard to see the good things. We have a name for that within the realm of cognitive distortions, and we call that the mental filter, that we just can't even see the good things or the beautiful things that are happening in us and in life. So learning to see them, maybe even starting in the moment if you're in a therapy office or in a session or in a a moment of connection with a friend, noticing those moments as they're happening and trying to stay with them. So that's an example of how mindfulness could be used in a way that's helpful for depression that doesn't necessarily involve sitting still or pushing against depressive thoughts. Mm-hmm. For anxiety, um, sometimes it can be helpful to practice a mindfulness activity that involves sorting. So a lot of times people approach mindfulness when they have anxiety and they think, I need to get rid of anxious thoughts. And actually what happens then is that when we notice those anxious thoughts come up, we become more preoccupied with them. And often there's a dialogue on the inside about feeling overwhelmed with the new awareness of just how many anxious thoughts there are. So instead of trying to get rid of anxious thoughts, we could think about sorting them, sorting them into categories that help us get better at identifying the nature of thoughts so that perhaps in the future we respond to them differently. For example, setting aside some time to practice noticing if a thought comes up what kind of thought it is or what category we want to place it in. And in that way, we're still up in our head and we're still working really hard and the anxiety thoughts are still there, but we're changing our relationship to them and we're becoming aware of them so that they're not so automatic. Again, all of those are different ways of practicing mindfulness based on whatever the presenting concern is, but I still haven't really got to the heart of your question, which is about trauma. So... For trauma, mindfulness can be a bit of a minefield, although it can be helpful for, you know, all of the things that we know, increasing heart rate variability, activating the rest-digest branch of the autonomic nervous system, thickening structures in our brain that help us downregulate the fear, anger, arousal systems in the brain. We know all of those things, but for people who have trauma, being mindful can result in an experience that we call flooding. That's when all of the sensations and the somatic and implicit memories associated with the trauma get activated. They come up as we slow down and pay attention because all of the things that we've been doing to try to get away from them aren't active in that moment. So sometimes when people are doing mindfulness, they get flooded or they actually just dissociate. It's too much too soon to come back to that comment that I made earlier. A person can re-experience trauma if they start to tune in. And that means that mindfulness or mindful activities need to be administered or practiced very carefully and in the right dosage. If we think of mindfulness as almost like a medication, we want to start slow and in ways that actually make sense based on what is happening in your brain. So here are some of the things that can be helpful for a person doing mindfulness who has a history of trauma. One, keeping your eyes open. Often when we're doing mindfulness, we tell people, close your eyes. But for some people, going on the inside or being told to close your eyes activates the trauma memories. So not only having your eyes open can be helpful, but being given a choice about what to do with your body, with your eyes, with your thinking. Another thing we can do is not go on the inside, but be mindful of the things that are on the outside. 
So noticing what's around us instead of paying attention to the sensation on the inside of our body. That might mean that we're less likely to stay with or activate any kind of implicit or somatic memories that are associated with this trauma that's living in our nervous system. Some people find that having music on is really helpful. Some people find that having no sound or some songs or sounds can be activating. So again, it comes back to the choice piece. What is it in my context that helps me feel a little bit more present or aware of what's going on? It's probably not a good idea to tell a person or to tell yourself to relax. For a lot of people who've experienced trauma, that was something, especially if it was sexual in nature or interpersonal, that was a series of words that was used as part of the trauma. So saying to someone, just relax, doesn't necessarily actually help us. It could make things worse. And before we get into doing mindfulness, sometimes, or this could be considered perhaps a branch of mindfulness, we work on orienting. So getting skills at noticing the world around us and becoming mindful of those before going inside. So for example, for anyone who's listening, as long as it's safe to do this, because I know some people listen while they're in their cars or out on a walk, but if you have a moment right now where you can pause and look around you, notice if there are lines moving in a certain direction, like horizontal or vertical that your eye is drawn to, and see if you can pick out those lines. Or see if you notice shapes or patterns. Perhaps you might notice some squares in your field of vision. So all of those things are helping us be mindful, but in a way that helps our brain know that the context that we're in is actually safe. And sometimes going inside is too activating because it means that we access everything that we've been trying to get away from. Before starting mindfulness, I often recommend for people doing groundwork to help build skills around emotional regulation, distress tolerance, grounding, and try to give people lots of psychoeducation about mobilization tendencies in the body and dissociation. So if we're told mindfulness is great, do it, it's good for your brain, it's good for your spiritual practices, et cetera, et cetera, and then we go inside and all of a sudden we're flooded with fear or we feel like we don't know where we are or we can't feel our body anymore, that understanding that that's a very normal response and that there are things we can do about it means that when that happens, we're not getting another level of trauma or another level of fear on top of what's already there. A few other things, um, when I'm doing mindfulness with people who have trauma, I primarily ask them to do it with me in the room and give lots of choice and only incorporate it after a big chunk of trauma work has been done. We start really slow. And when I'm inviting a person to become aware or mindful of something, I'm extremely attuned to their micro expressions, their body language, skin color, and will often bring people out of a mindfulness exercise if I think they're getting flooded or before they could get flooded as a way of helping them learn implicitly that they can do that for themselves, how it works and what it feels like. The One of the technical or clinical words that we use for that is titration. So going towards something and then coming back, going towards something, maybe even a little bit closer and coming back. And it builds this behavioral memory of being able to leave a situation and creates this, if you could think of it, like a neural track out of whatever behavior or context that we're in. For anyone who's wanting to learn more, there's a new book, uh, a new great book that came out called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. 
And for people who enjoy yoga or want to try yoga but have a history of trauma, I highly recommend doing a kind of yoga that I have some training in that comes from the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts called Trauma Sensitive Yoga, which looks at all of these things and how we can still learn to slowly over time be in our bodies and be aware even when our nervous system says it might not be safe to do so. Mm-hmm. That's what I got on that. Um, anything you want to add, Mike? Gosh, it'd be hard to add anything there. <laughs> that was, Zero. I mean, I've, I've studied <laughs> meditation pr- pretty extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when you got into the portions, especially on how yoga intersects trauma, that was all new for me. Um, and if, if you know me, you know there's nothing I love more than new information. My goodness, I was enthralled. And I really appreciate the... I get frustrated with meditation teachers who like romanticize the struggle of meditation. Um, because I think when you set this framing of this hard, long road to enlightenment or whatever... Um, you shoo people away from the benefits they could get if someone just said, hey, what if we try to like be aware and non-judgmental for 60 seconds? Right. And that's something most people can try and have a good experience with. And for a lot of people, the, the aware might come easily, but the non-judgment is going to be really be a struggle. And I feel like trying to get people into these 30 and 60 minute sessions right up front, um, it just sets them up for failure. It's like taking... Mm-hmm. It'd be like if I went out and tried to run 10 miles right now, I would probably literally injure my body. That doesn't mean running 10 miles is bad. It just means I'm not ready. Hmm. So I really appreciate that that focus and that nuance of, you know, maybe the popular conceptions we have of meditation all the way into our media um, aren't setting us up for success. Yeah. And it means that we have to know what's right for us, too. That, yes, one specific thing might, generally speaking, be helpful for the average brain. But as I was saying, if it's not dosed appropriately or if we don't have the support around how to do that in a way that works based on how our brain works, then it can leave us maybe even a worse off situation. So we want to be careful about how we use interventions, particularly when an intervention is um, causing us to go to the place where our trauma resides, which is in the body and often in our nervous system, which is constantly in the present. This one says, for those of us battling mental health demons, what does one do when therapy does not work? Or at the least, when therapy results in more harm than benefit? I'm frustrated and bamboozled on how to proceed on this journey because everyone treats therapy as the magic pill to make things better. And therapy is not helpful. When I say therapy, I'm referring to anything from uh, CBT to DBT to intensive inpatient treatment, daily outpatient sessions, and multiple therapists with different focuses and styles. As someone who is highly introspective and prefers not to share anything personal with anyone, The inability to be vulnerable with or even to physically say truthful words to a therapist results in a further spiral of shame, guilt, and an overwhelming sense of failure as a person. Then this spiral is in turn unable to be communicated to the therapist 
So the spiral gets worse and worse after each appointment. So what do you do when therapy doesn't work? Signed, Anonymous. Ooh, yeah. I feel the weight of that question. And I'm guessing from the question that that you, writer, um, or someone you know, whoever you're talking about, is has tried a lot of different things to heal. And I can hear the frustration and the discouragement. And man, I think my primary response just off the top is that I'm so sorry that you're hurting. I'm so sorry that the things that you were told would work and, and tried didn't help. It can take so, so, so long to change. It can take so many different kinds of interventions. And when we're hurting... I think there is something in us that is just desperate for it to be that magic pill. And when people have told us that it is, it's even like there's another level of discouragement and frustration when it doesn't work the way that we're told that it will. It may not surprise you, or it might, I don't know, to know that this is something that I've worked with before, with my clients um, in a clinical setting, that you're not the only one who feels that way. And that sometimes the ways that we have promised people healing have, have disappointed them because our promises haven't delivered. And so I'm so sorry on behalf of the profession if we have told you lies or led you to believe things that, yeah, that weren't true and left you feeling more, more hurt. But I want you to know that you're not alone and that there are lots of people who feel this way or like this. And that it is actually possible to work through it. Uh, I tell you that not to diminish what's going on for you, but to say that that I don't feel hopeless hearing your question, that I don't feel discouraged, um, but I do know that that's how you feel and I can, I can hold that with you. So in light of that, just my heart aching, here are some of my thoughts about this more generally. Sometimes when therapy isn't working, it can be because there are other issues, um, kind of like the shame spiral you mentioned, that get in, in the way of us working on what feels like the real issue that we want to work on in therapy. For example, someone comes in because they want to work on some relationship issues, but they can't even get the words out, or it feels so uncomfortable to be across from someone that the shame spiral starts, the defenses get activated, and then we're left with this feeling of bar a barrier of distance, of, of futility. And now we have kind of two problems on our hands. So in that case, it can be important to work with the kind of therapist and therapy who specializes in working on those issues, the shame spiral, for example. And in that case, with in therapy, it might be someone who works with attachment traumas that create chronic shame in the first place. And sometimes if words are really hard to get out, then doing therapy that doesn't actually use words or logic is a really important first step because there's a lot going on that we can work with. And I think one of our misunderstandings about therapy generally, both within the profession and outside, is that therapy is exclusively two people talking to each other about intellectual constructs. And most of the beneficial therapy that I've received and done with people accesses the whole person and actually involves very little talking. But we have to back up in those cases and, and notice the barriers to therapy and work on the things 
first that might not seem like the presenting concern, but actually get in the way of doing the therapy. And when those feel like they're smoothed over, we can get on with the other things. These are often therapies which focus on interpersonal relationships, like I was mentioning, past attachment experiences, as they play out in the moment-to-moment interactions and give us corrective experiences. Perhaps going in and saying, I've got a shame spiral that happens when I try and tell people about my life. Or I've had people come in and have that written on a piece of paper because it's too hard to say. That there are ways of working around that specific thing that might create a corrective experience so that it feels a little bit safer to be in the room. So not just talking or sharing information, but accessing the parts of the self that carry the most shame. One of the kinds of therapy that I recommend for people who have found other therapy unhelpful in the past, and not surprisingly, it's actually really, really useful for some of the things that you're talking about, is a kind of newer therapy that's heavily rooted in neuroscience and attachment theory and inner processes and defenses that come up in therapy, and it's called AEDP, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy. And I think, Mike, I don't know how much you've talked about that kind of therapy that you're doing on this show, um, but often it doesn't involve a ton of talking, more experiencing and shifting things through experience. Is that correct to say? Have you talked about it a little bit? I have not talked about it on the show yet because (laughs) it is so prominently featured in my next book. So uh, I just outed you. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's all good. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, Sometimes people who struggle with therapy also find a kind of therapy called ACT helpful, acceptance and commitment therapy, because it can help us shift from the, how do I get rid of this suffering to it's here? How do I be with it? How do I be with the shame spiral? How do I see that it's present in the room and exist and perhaps learn to work with it in a way? Um, It can mean that we can still have meaningful and rich lives while having the anxiety, shame, or depression, um, but want to work on how we respond to those things as they come up. So the common therapies that people prescribe and that people do in inpatient and outpatient treatment centers are not the ones that I'm talking about here. This is usually um, done by people who are not necessarily in the system and people who have the freedom to take extra trainings and work in ways that are on the front line of our understandings of how people change and the neuroscientific evidence. Therapy, though, is super hard work. And sometimes it's a good idea to consult with a physician or psychiatrist about combining medication and therapy, um, which can often be extremely effective for people who find that one or the other doesn't seem to be working on their own. We've got really good empirical evidence that in a lot of cases for people who are resistant to or whose symptoms tend to still hang around when they've been trying one or the other, that doing them together results in in shifts. So I like to think about medication as a therapy aid at times. Um, For example, imagine that I'm in a hole and that you, Mike, are the therapist and you're dropping down this ladder and you say to me, here's the ladder. Here's the way out. Just grab it. It's right here come on. And I'm jumping and jumping and jumping and jumping, but I can't reach the ladder. So I think of medication sometimes as that footstool. It can help us reach the ladder. It does not get us out of the hole. It might feel nice for a while to to get a little bit more of a view because we're not so far down in the hole, but we still have to do 
the work and climb our way out. And that's hard, but at least we can reach the ladder now. We couldn't before. When therapy is hard and seems like it's not working, we could also think about trying to create the conditions in our lives under which therapy might be more effective. So having connection with others and a sense of belonging, getting exercise, getting good sleep, eating a healthy diet, having hobbies and doing things that are creative and fun, paying attention to the things that feel meaningful in our lives, and trying to make space for more of that. That might set our nervous system up so that when we encounter something hard or frustrating or new, that we're going at it with a little bit more in our tank. I also recommend books for people that might address the barriers that get in the way of therapy. So in this case, I, it might be a good idea to read a book about shame or complex or attachment traumas that might make sense of that inner experience, the shame spiral, and how that is related to connection and experiences of vulnerability. And sometimes insight can bring awareness to what pieces might need work most in therapy. And lastly, it's not always the right time or the right therapist or the right approach. Um, so there is that, that you, it sounds like you've done a ton of work. And I want to go out on a limb here and make an assumption. So bear with me. But if I'm making a correct assumption, not all hope is gone. Um, you made the effort to reach out to this. You you heard the call for questions and you decided to connect with me or try and ask for help, ask for some insight. So I, I believe that there is the part in you that wants to find the answer, wants to heal, wants to believe that there's something else that has yet to be tried. And like a blade of grass growing up between slabs of concrete, I can see that there, that, that in spite of all of the pain and what feels like failed attempts at healing and so much probably money and energy and effort and risk that that there is still that seed there and I hope for you my hope for you is that you can notice that too that you can believe in that and follow it and draw on it as you move forward mm. thank you for saying that Hillary mm. as I read the question I was struck at how much courage mm -hmm. and energy it took to write all that out. Yeah. Um, and I just want to echo what you just said again, just because I want the person asking the question to hear it twice. Mm. That for someone who says, I don't know how to say this to a therapist, you communicated it so clearly mm -hmm. to us just now that I understood where you were coming from. I I felt your frustration. Um so I would say, not as a therapist, but as your random friend on the internet, uh, you have a skill to communicate your needs and where mm -hmm. you're at, and you used it to reach out to us. And I hope that as you hear us talking right now, you can take a moment to savor that success that you do have the ability to communicate your needs to others. And I believe that that ability will help you find options over time um, that are effective in achieving the change you want in your life and in your feelings. And I'm so thankful that you were so honest with us just mm. now. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that honesty. 
Here's our last question for this episode. It says, Hello, Science Mike and Hillary. A dear friend of mine recently told me her therapist has been interpreting her dreams as part of her sessions. Citing Freud and Jung, her therapist has told her things like all characters in dreams represent parts of your own self, and the ocean appearing in your dream represents your unconscious. Now, I'm usually skeptical in general, but this sounds like complete <laughs> horseshit in the same category as astrology and telephone fortune-telling. I know the unconscious human brain is capable of a lot, like lucid dreaming, that brain scans have partially confirmed Freud's division of the psyche and that dreams serve as house cleaning for our brains. And we usually dream about things we've been thinking about, all from episode 30 of Ask Science Mike. That is an old school uh, <laughs> listener. I'm happy if it's helping my friend in therapy, even if it's just a placebo. It just seems laughably bogus to me. Is there any scientific or psychological research that supports such specific interpretation and meaning of the details in our dreams? Follow-up question, what does it mean scientifically and or psychologically that I very, very rarely remember even snippets of dreams upon waking, and even those are gone within minutes of waking up? Thanks for all you do. Keep it up. Okay. Do you want me to jump in, or do you want to say anything right off the bat? Um, I mean, I have all kinds of thoughts, but I, 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 if you want me to swing first, I'm, I'm happy to. Sure. Why don't you swing, and then I'll I'll share some of my thoughts after. Yeah. I'll, I'll, um, the first thing is when I talk about dreaming, I'm always going to be really cautious to stick to what we're confident about, and what we're mm -hmm. what we're confident about typically involves some direct measurement of a brain inactivity. And those studies are pretty hard to do. It's hard to get brain imaging on someone dreaming, so the sample sizes are really small. And so when we talk about what's happening in the brain while people sleep, we're really brushing against far frontiers of what we can know in neuroscience today. So when I talk about dreams, I talk very conservatively that I know that there are molecules and proteins uh, that move through the brain and there's different cell activity when we sleep that that helps clear out the day's activities and helps uh, deepen connections between neural neurons that have been active together. We reinforce neural networks while we dream. And I've seen lots of neuroscientists talk about how during REM sleep that process uh, creates images that our sleeping brain turns into narrative. That's what we call dreaming. And then I would just stop really short personally of any of the dream interpretation thing. Although, oddly enough, there was one thing I read in uh, the horseshit portion of the question that says everything in your dream represents parts of you. I actually agree with that because mm -hmm. your entire dream is happening in your brain. And before Hillary gets in and answers this question with qualification, I'd also say that... Um, whether or not dreams can be rigidly interpreted, the act of interpreting dreams can create narratives that help people heal. Mm. So I'm always reticent, even if it's a tool is not... I, I don't put a lot of confidence in overly specific dream indexes, for example. Mm -hmm. But if those tools have helped people heal, 
I'm always reticent to kind of pull the rug out from under them in something that has helped them to grow and to change. Although I'm with you, you know, what what specific imagery and dream represents, in my opinion, is most likely the activity of some neurons. <laughs> <laughs> well said. That aligns really well with what I was going to say. Um, there is no science that I'm aware of that can say definitively that specific symbols represent or images represent something conclusively about what's happening in a person and what that means existentially, what that means in terms of what's happening in a person's life. And of course, who knows, like maybe there are some things that we'll find out in the future, but it's really hard to test dream activity and the content and meaning of that empirically. Uh, you also can't randomly assign people to conditions where they dream about certain things and then they eval you know, evaluate what that means for them. So it's really hard for us to prove any of this. But I do want to say that sometimes there can be some, some theories that help us explore our inner experiences. And when they're used as tools to elicit curiosity, that, that can be really helpful. So... I think about it this way. If we have a theory about dreaming or symbols that helps us explore an experience, but we aren't necessarily trying to test or prove something, we're trying to generate some insight. And a lot of the therapy that Jung and Freud did was insight-based. A lot of trying to draw connections between what is happening subconsciously and what's happening consciously. And dream work is a really big part of that tradition. Um, a lot of therapy, as we know, was originally developed in the days of Jung or Freud by trial and error. Freud found out that when people talked, some of their symptoms went away. So therapy was born. And only later did the science come around to prove why it works and based on what we now know about the brain. So who knows? Maybe we'll find something out in the future. But right now, um, I couldn't find anything. And I, I can't imagine there would be anything out there um, that tells us that specific stories or images mean certain things. But here's what I will say. Instead of thinking about something like this empirically, often with dream analysis, we think about it as a map to lay over an experience that might help make sense of things. Uh, one popular theory in a, a variety of disciplines is to suggest that each part of the dream, as you're mentioning in this question, like a character, an element, a scene, represents a part of ourselves or our lives. And if so, if that's the case, what might that help us understand about the tensions we felt in the dream or the connections we felt in the dream and how it reveals something about what's playing out in our lives around us? For those of us who are in tune with what's happening around us and aren't engaging in a lot of um, defenses or repressing of our inner experiences, it might not yield any new information. But what it can point out to us is that maybe something needs addressing if we haven't really addressed it in our re regular lives. It doesn't work, though, in my opinion, to ever say to anyone, your dream meant this or this symbol means this. But rather, I think it can be interesting, perhaps exciting, perhaps um, meaningful to ask, what do you think that means? Or what do you think it reveals about what's happening in your life? And and what do you think is coming to the surface that maybe you didn't have some space for in your waking hours? While we often dream about the things that we're thinking about before we go to sleep, as you mentioned, the content of the dream is not as important necessarily as the emotion. When we're actually working with dreams and therapy, we want to pay attention to the felt experience of the dream. 
particularly because of what our brain might be doing, what we think it's doing when we're dreaming. So some of the research has showed us that although other structures of the brain seem to be less active when we're sleeping, that the amygdala and some of the limbic structures of the brain can be very active during REM stage sleep leading some to the hypothesis that during REM sleep, we're actually reconsolidating, processing, emotionally laden memory content. So one kind of dream work that I do with people is to say, what was the main feeling of the dream? And how does that feeling make sense based on what's happening in your life right now? If there was a big, big fear or grief or anger that came up in a dream and someone was disturbed, I might say, are there things that you feel angry about that maybe you haven't had a, a chance to feel? And again, not saying to someone, this is what your dream means or do this, but as a tool for exploration, always approached with curiosity. But I don't think that we can rely on these symbols to necessarily tell us information. Um, I don't think we can rely on these symbols definitively across people. And say, for example, that the ocean means this or that. But we can be curious about what comes up. And then to the second point of the question, just really briefly, the theory about the difficulty that some people have with remembering their dreams is actually about uh, what's happening with the hippocampus during different stages of sleep. So the hippocampus is a structure involved in helping us move things from short to long-term memory. And when we're asleep, it is relatively asleep so to speak. And in fact, some people think that the hippocampus is actually the last thing to wake up, which means that if we have a, a thought as soon as we wake up, because our hippocampus is, um, I'm speaking really colloquially here, like not up and running yet, <laughs> then <laughs> very colloquially, then um, it will be hard for us to move a little piece of information that we have in that moment to long-term storage and then retrieve it at another time. However, during REM sleep, the hippocampus can be very active. So one theory that I've read about is that it might actually depend on when we wake up and what sleep cycle or stage of the sleep cycle we're in when we wake up. Mm. And if you want to remember your dreams, uh, keep a notepad by the bed and a pen. Mm -hmm. And when you wake up, start writing. And mm -hmm. you'll, you'll let your uh, pad of paper act as memory formation, both in that moment, literally as you write it down, but that can also engage your memory systems faster, that act of tactile engagement. Um, and I also want to say something I think that's important based on this question. You've got a friend here who's got a therapist, and that therapist is uh, helping this person, I assume, but also communicating some ideas that I would say aren't terribly well-based in research. And um, at the risk of making Hillary slightly uncomfortable, <laughs> I need to tell you all why I like Hillary so much and how that impacts what therapists you work with, okay? One thing, Hillary is my friend. And Hillary, because she is a well-trained and professional therapist, always carefully delineates the line between being my friend and being my therapist. And something I've noticed uh, is that not all therapists are so cautious, even though that is ethically important and necessary. Some therapists have clients that they begin to treat as friends in the therapeutic environment, 
and they begin to move across boundaries that perhaps exist for good reasons um, in between a client and a therapist. Um, and and it, when therapists don't respect the line between friend and therapist, to me, that's at least a yellow flag, if not a red flag, of something that is warrants caution or concern. The other thing I really like about Hillary is in her therapeutic practice, she has a clear delineation between what comes out of research and what comes out of tradition. There's a lot of things in psychology that are traditional. They that doesn't mean they are without value. Um, but you know, one thing I've learned by being friends with Hillary is seeing how much of the therapeutic landscape has been shaped by psychoanalysis. And Hillary's mm-hmm. never said it in those terms, but me being exposed to more schools of therapy and the research supporting them has helped me understand really how broad the practices are there and how limited often the tool set people use in therapeutic environments are. You can imagine a toolbox that only includes spray paint. Like spray paint is good in specific conditions, but you don't want to drive a nail with it. Um, And so the things, one of the things I love so much about Hillary is she can talk fluently across different treatment strategies, understand when they're applicable and when they should aren't. And there's no one form of therapy that works for every mental health challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way we find out what's effective for what groups is research. And too often, I have seen in therapeutic environments, uh, the influence of not just spirituality, uh, but, but positively unscientific and even borderline dangerous ideas being communicated authoritatively. So when you are looking for someone in your life to get professional support and you're facing some kind of mental health challenge or just need the, the, the support that comes from a therapeutic environment, I would say look for someone like Hillary who is clear when they are your friend versus your therapist and when they are speaking from research versus when they are speaking from tradition. Well, gosh, Mike. Oh, I could do, I could write a book about how many <laughs> how many ways I like you, Hillary. That'd be really easy. <laughs> you know, your last point um, made me think about something that I had to do as part of a comprehensive exam or like a, a exam requirement as part of my PhD. Doing an oral exam where we defend our theoretical framework is essential for actually being able to graduate and then become a psychologist. One of the things we have to do in that, uh, what's called a a clinical comprehensive exam, is identify the ways in which our primary theory or approach is ineffective and for which populations and what we would do for those populations to present their or to work with their presenting concern. So it's actually a sign of, I think, integrity to be able to say, I can't do this work or that's not something that I treat or this is the way that I normally like to work, but I have to flex so I can meet you where you're at. And that means I'm going to be needing supervision and consultation. Is that all right with you? So being able to say where our limits are I think actually builds credibility in our profession and um, yeah, helps us do better work. But thanks for saying all those things. I'm glad that that's come through. That's really. (laughs) Oh, loud and clear. And and to that point, one of the first things my trauma therapist said to me was, I don't know very much about autism spectrum disorder. 
Would you mind giving me the contact information for the psychiatrist who diagnosed you so that I could talk with her? Mm-hmm. And that made me feel much more confident in working with this therapist than someone would say, oh, I know all about trauma and autism, <laughs> mm-hmm. but in fact did not. Well, the bad news is this episode with Hillary McBride on Ask Science Mike is over. But the good news is we've got two more to go. And uh, man, you really want to make time for these episodes. They are something special. Of course, I want to thank Hillary McBride uh, for coming on the program and uh, answering your questions. I know I learned a lot just listening to her. Uh, of course, I also want to thank Andrew Galucky for his pre-production work on Ask Science Mike. I want to thank Greg Nordine uh, for editing and sound design and being the producer of Ask Science Mike. Jeb Botterford wrote the Ask Science Mike theme song, which after all these shows is still a ton of fun. And of course, I want to thank all of my patrons on Patreon who make Ask Science Mike possible. And I always need new patrons. A dollar a month or $5 a month makes a huge difference in my life and my ability to continue making this program. So if you'd like to join my patrons and get behind the scenes access to Ask Science Mike, as well as picking what shows happen in the future, you can just go to AskScienceMike.com and tap the Join Me on Patreon button uh, to become part of the Patreon community. Again, every little bit helps. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll be back with Hillary McBride next week.